Thank you, Molly and Jacob. That's not even sufficient. That was amazing, peaceful, and just inspiring. Thank you so much. Hello, um, my name is Cheryl Hemp, and I am a member of this congregation, and welcome to First Universalist Unitarian Church. I want to extend a special welcome to any visitors joining us this morning. Since 1858, UU Wausau has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Between Sundays, we'd love to have you at one of our classes or events, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. And you can also, when you're here today, look at the yellow insert for, it gives you information about events that are coming up. At this time, I wanted to highlight a couple of events. A special thank you to Blood Drive volunteers, donors, and the American Red Cross for showing up on Monday, February 12th. Apparently 36 of 52 available appointments were filled and they collected 33 of the 25 goal pints of blood. So that seems like a positive because I've heard there's a shortage at the blood bank. So thank you to everyone who participated in that. The next blood drive will be here on April 9th, so put that on your calendar. Next Sunday is the soup and nut bread sale. So it's time to um, search for your best recipes. So to participate, bring your soup in in a quart-sized jar and label what it is, special ingredients, etc. And additional jars are outside in the atrium, I believe, um, if you need to take some of those home with you to fill them up for next week. And then please note that bread brought in should be a standard size loaf and not the mini loaves is the request. And then next Sunday before and after church, you can purchase soup and this bread. So that sounds like a good deal. And then I personally wanted to highlight that the goods and services auction will be coming on Saturday, May 4th. You know, one of the ideas for a theme is May the 4th be with you, of course. So, <laughs> um, I don't know, we'll have another one. But please mark that on your calendar and we'll have more information coming. But think about what you could donate, including dinners um, at your home or here at church. If you have a particular skill, like you're good at knitting, you could give knitting lessons. It's a, a wide gamut of possibilities and we'll give you some catalog ideas um, for past donations so you can kind of think ahead for what you might be able to donate. And then we're also accepting actual items for a silent auction part at the event. So. It's a very fun event. We haven't had it since before, two, I think 2019 was the last time, so I'm excited to have this again. So at this time, 
The offering will be later in the service, but I wanted to invite Iris Otten from Children's Wisconsin to talk about their Start Right Healthy Children program, and I will let her um, give some information about that, and then again we'll do the offering later in the service. But welcome, Iris. Hi, I want to thank you again for inviting. Um, I technically wasn't the original person supposed to be speaking. I was supposed to be my supervisor, so just bear with me. Um, she did give me uh, the programs that I'm going to list that we offer. Again, I'm Iris Otten. I'm from Children's Wisconsin. Um, I've been in my role for 21 years. Um, and um, still there. So I'd like to tell, uh, talk a little bit about what we have to offer. Um, our services um, are free and they are voluntary. We offer a resource center and the resource center is where parents can find resources, programs, and enjoy activities with their children. We offer parenting classes, parent information meetings, and parent-child activities. Child care is provided for parenting classes. We also have a warm line. The warm line is not for emergencies. The warm line is for parents who may be under stress, have questions, or just need someone to talk to. If your questions concern, if your questions um, are a little um, intensive, then you can schedule an appointment to come one-on-one -on -one to speak in the office with us. We also have play and learns. These are held at the library, and they are for birth to five, and they are held at the uh, Wassa Public Library Wednesdays from 9.30 to 10.30. I will save what I do for last, which is the Start Right programming, which is why I'm really here. Um, we offer other events throughout the year. We offer different events, such as a field trip uh, for the play and learns, um, they've done things in the past, such as the CWA helicopter, the chocolate shop, um, the Woodchucks Stadium, and Save for Fire. We have educational nights with experts where parents can learn about autism, mom shaming, teen dating, violence, and more. We have special events for holidays, such as a Christmas night, where you can meet at our office for ornament making, a Christmas movie, and treats. We also have a parent cafe and other discussion groups where parents can connect and learn from each other. Stay up to date with our events by finding us on Facebook, Children's Wisconsin Marathon County Family Resource Center. Our office is located at 705 24th Avenue, Suite 400 in Wassa. We are opened eight to five, Monday through Friday. Now, why I'm here, the Start Right program. Um, this is a program that, um, it involves any um, mother who has a child from zero up to one is the time for you to enroll, but we are actually in the home for five years. What do we teach for five years? Well, we teach about brain development. We have five domains that we work on. Uh, we work on um, brain development, gross motor skills, which is the big um, muscles, fine motor skills. Um, we also do communication. We do... Um, social and emotional. We also um, help families with resources that they might not know that are in the area. Um, we come into the home. We can meet in the home, 
in our office space or we could meet elsewhere. It's wherever you were more comfortable. We technically like to meet more in the home because then there's a better environment and a better relationship that you can create with your child. We try and teach parents that you don't have to go out and buy expensive toys for your children. Um, you have them in the home where you can teach them. Um, so that's basically what we do. What would, what would we do with your offering? We, we would probably um, gas so mothers can take their children to doctor's well child checks to get immunized. Um, we would also help with groceries. Um, some of them do get food snap, but um, with the price of food right now, it's, it's you know, hardly enough for them to be able to feed other mouths in the home. Um, we also help with clothing if the child is out of clothing. Recently, I helped a family out um, who had just arrived from Nicaragua. Uh, the child needed to be enrolled in school. The parents in Nicaragua thought that they were going to be coming to work. And I had to educate the family and let them know that um, the law is that a, a child must be enrolled in school. Um, so I helped enroll him in school. Um, when um, he was enrolled in school, it was a surprise to them that they had to come up with $200 in order for him to have transportation to the school and get his education. Uh, because he lived 1.8 miles from the school. We all know Wisconsin winters. Nicaragua people don't know Wisconsin winters. So for him to be able to walk that 1.8 miles would be um, very uh, not likable for him. So um, we try to help out our families uh, financially in a time of need. Um, we've had many instances where uh, families don't have enough money um, you know, to cover other costs. Um, electric bill um, or they are just in need of uh, some dire basic needs. Um, I guess this is it. Um, I hope that you can help contribute and I can guarantee you and promise you that a hundred percent of the donations are used for the family and nothing more. Um, we uh, are very good at improving family relationships uh, we are good at interacting with your child, but we are not in the home. We are not in the home to um, have a relationship with your child. We are there to make sure that you create a bonding and well attachment with your baby all the way to age uh, five. So um, thank you again for having me, and I appreciate it. Uh, before I do leave, I just have... Um, Three quotes, I have several, but I don't want to overwhelm you with these quotes, but my supervisor wanted me to read some of the quotes from families who have been in the program, um, what they have said. Um, a Start Right participant said, I have, I never had anyone in my life who believed in me until I met my home visitor. She is the reason I was able to get clean and regain custody of my children. I do not know where I would be without her. But I do know I would not have my own apartment, I would not be getting all A's in my college courses, and I would not be successful mom that I am today. Um, this was a quote from a parenting class that we offer. I think the tools and teaching taught in this program are important for raising children. I think it helps a lot to try different methods you may not think of, of on your own. It's also nice to have the support from the staff hear about your specific situation. And the last quote was from a uh, 
parent aid participant. I, t I can talk with my kids without yelling. So again, these are just um, uh, quotes from families who have uh, dealt with Children's Wisconsin. Thank you, have a great day. Thank you, Iris, and it is an unbelievably important program in our community. Where I work, we've worked in, um, together with that program, and it's, it's, it's just very needed. So thank you very much for coming and telling us. And now, if we could um, rise and greet one another and just say welcome and to each other. Thank you. So dear friends, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the chalice lighting, which is listed in the bulletin. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. And now if we could Please rise again in body or spirit for our opening hymn, number 86, Blessed Spirit of My Life, number 86.
Good morning. You know, every Sunday morning when I come, I notice where the kids are. They're always way in the back with their families. So I just kind of wanted to remind everybody that sometimes it's hard to see these pictures that are up on the screen. And uh, kids, you can sit on your parents' laps. You can sit on your knees. For anybody who can't see in the back, you're welcome to stand up and move to the sides if you want. Or there's lots of room up here in these front pews. And I'm going to give a short introduction to this story, and that would be a really good time for you to move forward if you want to do it without distraction. So my name is Joni Hahn, and Jess is away today. When she and I got together and had a conversation about today's story for all ages, uh, we discussed some of the things that Reverend Brian will be talking about today. And one of the things that we reflected on is a misunderstanding that sometimes uh, the Unitarian Universalist religion is described as a religion that is a non-religion. And the fact that sometimes members and friends who come to our churches do not have any faith and that made me wonder, what is the definition of faith? And Jess shared with me a sweet little book titled Faith. It is published by Charles Bridge for the Global Fund for Children. In our world, there are many different faiths. We celebrate our faiths and we show our faith in action in many different ways. By singing and chanting, by reading our holy books, by listening and learning from others. By observing holidays. By marking the events and milestones in our lives. by sharing meals, by respecting one another, building friendships, and building peace, by giving to others, and by helping one another. But most of all, we do it with hope. And so, I ask the question, is Unitarian Universalism a real religion? And are the people who gather together in our churches people with faith? Well, I'm not here to answer that question for you, 
but I'd like to leave you a few more images to ponder. We observe holidays. We listen and learn from others. We read our holy books. We build friendships. We build peace. We give to others and we help one another. We share meals. In our pews, we have the music that leads us to chanting and singing. We respect one another and we mark our joys and our sorrows and the events and milestones in our lives. And now children in pre-K up to sixth grade are welcome to join us downstairs for Children's Chapel. And children from seventh to twelfth grade can go upstairs for Cafe Connections in Walker Hall. And I invite you to please, whether you're staying here or joining us for RE, to sing along with us the song that's in your order of service, our children's song. Thank you. Well, good morning. Nice to see you. I'd like to invite all of you to join me in a spirit of prayer and meditation. Develop an awareness of your body here in this moment. And so start by uncrossing your legs and taping, taking a nice, full, deep breath. If you're comfortable, I invite you to close your eyes. Settle into a comfortable position. Move your attention upwards into your jaw. If there's any tension there, let it out. Try and relax and slow down your breathing a little bit. Take a nice full breath into your chest and slow out. Another full breath deep into your stomach and exhale. And let us pray. God of sea and God of sky, of earth and wind, we give thanks for the beauty of the world. We give thanks for the flowers awaiting 
bright flags snapping in the breeze, the mornings in February that have tricked us into thinking it's spring. We give thanks for smiling strangers. We give thanks for our first breath each morning, for the peace of sleep at night. We give thanks for pipes and pumps that bring water into our homes and offices. We give thanks for working computers and charged phones that keep us in touch with loved ones who live far away, especially now. We give thanks for those who work dangerous jobs, for loving parents. We give thanks for the season, this time to learn from sacred teachings what is right, this time to follow more closely in the ways of truth, no matter how hard. Let us now call to mind the joys and sorrows in our lives, and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please stay seated and open your hymn books to 123, Spirit of Life.
The mission and ministry of UU Wausau is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Today you can place a gift in the basket as it passes by, and you can also visit our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit or debit card. And again, as a reminder, the primary offering today will be going to the Start Right program of Children's Wisconsin. Thank you. All right, the, the um, poem, I've changed up the reading this morning. I was going to read from Forest Church book, but I'm the minister here. I can do very little that I want, but I can change the reading if I want to. So uh, the poem I'm going to read this morning is entitled, The Pleasures of Hating. Isn't that a wonderful title for a poem? It's by this great poet, Laurent Bosselard, uh, and the poet writes, I hate Mozart. Hate him with that healthy pleasure one feels when exasperation has crescendoed, when lungs, heart, throat, and voice explode at once. I hate that. There's bliss in this rapture. My shrink, my therapist, tried to disabuse me, convinced I use Amadeus as a prop. My shrink says, think further, your father perhaps? I want to go back, think of the shrink with a powdered wig, pinched lips, a mole, a transference, he'd say, a relapse. So be it. I hate broccoli, chainsaws, patchouli, bra clasps that draw dents in your back, roadblocks, men in black knee socks, men in sandals and socks. I hate, or rather I love hating that. I loathe stickers on tomatoes, Beef jerky, deconstruction, Nazis, doilies. 
I delight in detesting and love loving so much after that. There ends our reading. Well, I'm sure 
Many of you spent last Sunday evening watching the Kansas City Chiefs play the San Francisco 49ers in the Super Bowl. Statistically, like more than two out of three of you did, so I know you did. It was a great game by my estimation. This marked the first year my 12-year-old daughter agreed to watch the Super Bowl with me. But before the game started, she said, the only reason I'm watching this game with you is for the commercials. So for those of you who live under rocks, Super Bowl ads are a big business. More than 123 million Americans alone watched the Super Bowl game this year. It's a record number. So knowing this in advance, ad firms, they went to great lengths to ensure that their ads were good. At $7 million for every 30 seconds, you better believe that ad firms are not going to phone it in. Each of those ads are produced after months and months of market research, months and months of data analysis and trend tracking. It's been said that nobody knows an audience better than the firms that put Super Bowl ads together. So by my estimation, it's a humble estimation, but by my estimation, if you really want to know about modern life in America, you don't tune in to see the president give the State of the Union address, forget watching the Oscars, forget the Grammys. If you want to know about modern life in America, what do you do? You watch Super Bowl ads. And so what did this year's ads have to say about the American people? I'll tell you. We like gambling. We like Mountain Dew because it is crisp and delicious. We enjoy driving Kias. We like Reese's peanut butter cups because they are amazing. We like nostalgia. We like grandparents. We like cell phones. We like, as it turns out, Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger. We also have a fetish for hot wings and cheese dip and food delivered to our doors. There's America for you anyways. So there are two ads that stood out for me. Maybe you remember these. The first one was the Dove Soap commercial ad that was set to Jay-Z's wonderful tune, Hard Knock Life, that talked about how 45% of girls quit sports by the time they turn 14 years old because of this nefarious thing, because of body shaming. I loved, or I should rather say, I was very deeply touched by this commercial. It made me cry. It made me want to reach out and hug my daughter, but she's in puberty and I can't hug her without permission, so I just high-fived her. The other commercial that really got me, that touched me, that sort of arrested me, was the He Gets Us ad. Now, He Gets Us is a religious group that's often critiqued for supposedly having a hidden political agenda. Setting that controversy aside, I found it arresting to see an ad showing people bend down and wash other people's feet. I don't know if you've ever been part of a foot washing service, but every time I've ever been a part of one, the experience is always powerful. For the record, I hate having my feet touched. I have always been a washer, personally. I have never been the wash-e, but I have been told if you like having your feet touched, having your feet washed, 
is where it's at. And so in the ad, what you see is you see a son bending down, washing his father's feet after a destructive family fight. You see a white cop washing a black man's feet in the streets. Two women outside a family planning clinic, a priest and a non-binary person, a daughter and her addict mother. It ends with this message. Jesus didn't teach hate. Jesus washed feet. Pretty powerful stuff. So this tradition of foot washing is both Jewish and it's Christian. It's inspired by this beautiful verse in the Bible that reads like this, love one another as I've loved you. And so what foot washing is all about is it's all about love and it's all about humility. And so these ads arrived at a time when a lot of smart people are expressing increasing concern with what they're seeing in our country. And so one smart, well-meaning person is the New York Times columnist David Brooks. In a recent essay, he conveys concern with Americans' seeming obsession with three things. We're obsessed with, of course, Mountain Dew, but after that, we're obsessed with doom-mongering and catastrophism and, of course, the endless festival of blaming others for problems. The second essay that I have in mind is by a Harvard University law professor named Janine Sook Gerson, who addresses the attack on the freedom of speech, both from the left and from the right, that threatens the conditions for academic freedom. So here's how Brooks concludes his essay, quote, we shouldn't let our current season of gloom and menace become self-fulfilling, but rather should help make the country ripe for communalism of belonging. History shows that it doesn't pay to be pessimistic about pessimism, end quote. Here's how Garrison's essay concludes, quote, unless we conscientiously and mindfully pull away from that path, the path of disciplining merely objectionable speech, academic freedom, which is essential for fulfilling a university's purpose, will meet a certain destruction, end quote. Both of these essays are quite good. It would take up 15 minutes of your time to read both of them. They're written by people in David Brooks, who represents a conservative perspective, and in Gerson, you get a good progressive perspective. But both essays, I believe, I think they fail to reckon with this essential thing. Many Americans, as far as I can tell, they do not want to shape their views in accordance with data. I don't really think many Americans seem to want to create an environment in which a broad range of perspectives are freely articulated and peacefully debated. People don't seem to want to be hopeful about America. Have you seen a current exit poll about any current political candidate? They're all terrible. That's what we say. What people seem to want, aside from Mountain Dew and Reese's peanut butter cups and chicken wings, is to passionately hate their enemies. Now hate, as odd as it may sound, is actually a rather pleasureful experience. It's been proven. And it's pleasureful because it's easy. It's like choosing between a Hershey's chocolate bar right there at the counter or going home and baking an apple pie from scratch. One is much easier than the other, even though they are both very, very satisfying. When you hate someone, you never have to consider any perspective aside from your own. 
You never have to wonder if you're wrong. You don't have to empathize or bend down or wash anyone's feet. If you can believe this, 200 years ago, there was this English writer by the name of William Hazlitt who actually wrote a book on this topic entitled On the Pleasure of Hating. You can buy it. Hazlitt thinks, quote, the spirit of malevolence, as he calls it, is actually necessary for human beings. Here's a long quote from him. Nature seems, the more we look into it, made up of antipathies. Without something to hate, we should lose the very spring of thought and action, end quote. In other words, like war, hate is a force that gives us meaning. Now, Hazlitt, of course, thinks that there are other motives for our actions than hate, but he thinks that those motives are weaker. Now, I'm going to spare you a whole bunch of chatter, and I'm going to tell you how Hazlitt ends his essay on the pleasure of hating. It goes like this, quote, Seeing all this as I do, and unraveling the web of human life into its various threads of meanness, spite, cowardice, want of feeling, want of understanding, of indifference towards others, and ignorance of ourselves, seeing custom prevail over all excellence, itself giving way to infamy. Have I not reason to hate and to despise myself? Indeed I do, and chiefly for not having hated and despised the world enough." End quote. I'm going to tell you what he's saying. What he's saying is this. You can hate as much as you can, and in the end, it will never, it can never be enough. Hate only leads to more hate. All that will be left is this sort of sense of self-loathing. So now I'm going to add a spiritual element to this conversation where Brooks and Garrison didn't. Here's where the real meat of this sermon was made. I'm going to talk about what we as religious people offer that exceeds the pleasure of hating. So my thoughts start from this position. I don't think that the solution to our problem is mere optimism or freedom or democracy or liberal values. I don't think those are going to solve all our problems. I don't think this because years ago I was convinced by people much smarter than me that humans need something more than reason, more than logic, more than cleverness to change our minds. The person I was convinced by, his name is David Hume. He's a philosopher. Here's what he said, quote, Reason is and ought only be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them, end quote. If you want to change people, you've got to appeal to their hearts. Hume's point is that we want to stop getting so much pleasure from hating. What we need to do is actually educate our passions. We have to change people's hearts. So the question to keep in mind is this. What pleasure can we offer to ourselves and to others that exceeds the pleasure of hating? So, before we answer that question, I'm going to set up the parameters of your imagination. You're not allowed to get all loosey-goosey. This is what your imagination is allowed to do this morning. Are you ready? I'm going to say these things because I bet, to some extent, all of these things are true about you. You've been self-conscious about your appearance. You've felt guilty about things you've done or you've failed to do. You've been insecure sexually. You have secrets. You've been stressed out. And you're aging. Now I'll tell you a little bit about me. I 
derive far too much pleasure out of reading tabloids. I've lied even when I had no need to do it. I've quenched my fears with alcohol and anger. I've run from pain, and I've been given more love than I can ever repay. These are our imagination's parameters this morning. I linger here because the question I'm asking you, what pleasure, what gratification can we offer to people that exceeds the pleasure of hating, is a question that can only be answered by searching the human heart. All those things I said about you, all those things that said about me, they're matters of the heart. That said, when it comes to matters of the heart, there's no such thing as one size fits all. The love you have, the love people have for you, it's always particular. Yesterday I did a funeral. All those hundreds of people who were here, they weren't mourning for people in general, were they? They were mourning for the person in the casket that was right here. The way you love, the way you love your people is unique to you and it's unique to the people you love. And this is true for everyone. And so this is why the most enduring myths humankind has ever created always show people taking a deathbed account of their lives and what happens after you die and you survey your life. You get judged, right? That's what happens. St. Peter at heaven's pearly gates, right? St. Peter's got the big book and he says whatever St. Peter says. There's also a god in Buddhism. Her name is Enma, which judges the souls of people who go to heaven or hell. There's also the great beyond, that big soul zapper, for those of you who watched the Disney movie Soul, you remember that? So in Egyptian mythology, when we die, what happens is this, our life, the entirety of our life is actually weighed to determine whether we get to sail across the heavenly waters or we die again, and this time we die for forever. And so what the ancient Egyptians believed is that the heart actually was the organ of our intelligence and our memory. And so when we die, if you were an Egyptian, what you would imagine is this. Anubis, the god of embalming, would place your heart on a scale, and Anubis would weigh your heart to see how much sin was inside of it. And what do you think was the counterweight against your heart? It was a feather. If our heart was lighter than a feather, only then would you pass the test. If it was heavier than a feather, we didn't. And so what you need to do here is you need to think of feathers as a symbol for the beauty and lightness of being. This is why angels are always given wings, right? As G.K. Chesterton wrote, angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. And so this gets me to the first of my three answers to my own question, which is this. The first answer, take yourself lightly and the world seriously. In a word, passion. Have passion. I think one of the reasons why hate is so pleasurable is because it's like fast food, as I said. It's cheap and it's delicious and it's available in almost every corner of the world. And what is hate like? I'll give you an example from Bob Dylan this morning. Bob Dylan answers that question in a wonderful song called Positively Fourth Street. Dylan sings this, he says, when I was down, you just stood there grinning. You just want to be on the side that's winning. You say, how are you? And good luck, 
but you don't mean it. And what does Dylan wish hate could do? In the song's imagination, what Dylan wants hate to do is he wants hate to bend down, to put on his shoes. He wants hate to see him as he sees himself. He wants hate for the, to see the world from his point of view. He wants hate to feel his pain. What does he want hate to do ultimately? He wants hate to pull off his smelly socks and wash his feet. And so this is something Unitarian Universalists can do a better job of. I'm not saying specifically we should do foot washing services. I'm up for it if you all are up for it. I don't know anybody, nobody's raising their hand. Okay, I guess we're not gonna do it, it's just metaphor. But it is something that Unitarian Universalists can do a better job of. Because as Joni's wonderful story put it this morning, what you use are really good at doing is we're really good at calling out other people's stuff. We're experts at articulating our hates, our nots, our I know you are's, but what am I's? And I think that this is a good skill for a while, but it has to be balanced. And so as many of you know, the great sage of Concord, Massachusetts, Ralph Waldo Emerson, he was a Unitarian Universalist minister for a long time until he infamously resigned his pulpit in Boston because he said Unitarianism has become, quote, what? A cold corpse. That's what he said. Emerson said we lack warmth and passion, and the passion we lack is the passion to be transformed. And Emerson wasn't wrong, but he wasn't exactly right either. More on that in a moment. I'm going to give you a hero to look up to in this movement. So one of my personal heroes is this guy by the name of William Greenleaf Elliott, a man Emerson traveled to St. Louis, Missouri to see. And upon meeting William Greenleaf Elliott, he actually wrote back to Boston. He said, I have met the saint of the West. I bring up Eliot because his living, his life and his living, it gives us a glimpse of what we might consider cooking if we've grown tired of hate's flavor. And so late in life, Eliot had grown quite sick and he was relating a story to his sons about an incident that took place like 50 years earlier that had left this deep impression on him. He recalled how whenever he was a young man, he was walking across the Boston Common with Margaret Fuller who some of you may remember from your history books, Margaret Fuller was an abolitionist and an early feminist who has often said she possessed one of the finest minds in America, but with an ego and a tongue to match. And so here's Fuller and here is Eliot. They're walking across the commons together and Eliot made some self-depreciating remarks about his capacities. We've all done this before. But what he was hoping is what we've also all done before is you make these self-depreciating comments about yourself because you're hoping your friend will be like, oh, but you look great in that sweater or whatever, right? So anyways, they're walking along together. Elliot's saying all these terrible things about himself and Fuller's just quiet and listening. And at the end of listening to Elliot go on with this whole litany, this is what Elliot said Fuller said to him, quote, oh, dear William, how few people judge themselves so rightly as you do. End quote. <laughs> Over the course of the next 50 years of his life, get this, this is what William Greenleaf Elliott did. He established the first Unitarian church west of the Mississippi River, the Church of the Messiah. Go there. He founded Washington University in St. Louis. My baby sister graduated from there. He founded the Mary Country Day Institute School. He founded the Western Sanitation Commission. 
He helped free the enslaved, and he personally advised President Lincoln on political strategy during the Civil War. And so as Eliot lay dying, he gathered his family all around him. Remember, people were planning parades for Eliot. Just think about all the stuff that he did. And Eliot made his family refuse. He said, don't do that. Don't allow them to do that to me. And so as he was lay, lay dying, he said to his wonderful wife, he said, all I want to happen is a service at the church, and I want you to carve these three words onto my grave, looking unto Jesus. Eliot aimed to serve others, and that's what he did. You can go and see his headstone, and all it says is William Greenleaf Eliot, looking unto Jesus. Now, we can't all be Eliot, but we can humble ourselves to the magnitude of hurt and need that many people live with, and we can respond in kind. And so my answer number two, in a word, is humility. The third answer to this question is transcendence. And one of the meanings of that word is to stand outside yourself, to gain a new perspective. As Jesus advises, lose yourself to find yourself. Give yourself to gain yourself. Just think about the last time you lost yourself. Maybe it was a wonderful moment with your spouse. Maybe it was whenever you read James McBride's Heaven and Earth Grocery Store, which I highly recommend. Maybe it was a couple of weeks ago when it was listening to Luke Combs and Tracy Chapman sing Fast Car at the Grammys. Maybe it was this morning in prayer or meditation or the last time you were in the garden. The magic of transcendence is that it adds meaning to life's projects. I think about all the people I met when I walked the Camino from France to the coast of Spain. Every single one of those people you meet along the Camino, they're so eager to have an encounter. If you were walking that trail right now, you would meet someone who is a perfect stranger who would be willing to give you the time for you to tell them your life story. I guarantee you. But the thing is, is you can take that eagerness for encounter almost everywhere you go. Because the thing is, is if we don't practice the art of standing outside ourselves, you can never connect with others. And connecting, it's been scientifically proven, is what meaning is all about. Here's the last thing I want to say. Love is a school of fire. That's what the 13th century mystic Rumi said. He said that love is a cleansing, powerful, and at times a painful gift. Rumi believed that all of us have the power to shepherd our lives. Notice he didn't say dictate. He said shepherd. We aren't in control. God is. Fate is. But we get to chart paths. We get to temper our reactions. And we get to go a different way. Or, as the saint of Glampop said... Chacha, chacha changes. Turn and face the strange because pretty soon you're going to get older. Who else would you rather listen to than David Bowie? I want you to bear this thought in mind. It's a very warm and sunny thought. I am going to die. It's been said that at the moment before death, our lives pass before our eyes. And so I have an assignment for all of you this week. Here it is. Set a timer for 60 seconds. Do you all have access to a timer? 
I'm sure you do. Set the timer for 60 seconds, close your eyes, and imagine what you'd see if your life ended then. Not a second left for another project, not a moment for one last call. What did you see? Was there a lot of anger? Was there too much satisfaction with yourself? Was there not enough telling people that they're beautiful just as they are? Was there not enough washing feet? Humility, transcendence, and passion. That's what exceeds hate. That's what reignites the fire of our faith. Now, all this I just preached, these are just three of the many things that give my life meaning. Things that I think can help this tradition. Things that have helped me fight my own personal urges to hate. But the last question is, what about you? Okay, I think we've had enough for this morning. Let's rise and sing our closing hymn in the Teal Book. 1064, Blue Boat Home.
If you're willing to receive these closing and benediction words, I invite you to reach out, take the hand of someone nearby. If you're here alone, reach out with your heart. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Please have a seat. Enjoy the postlude.